Are you a business owner looking for real advice and input? You're in the right place. From concept to launch to growth, funding and beyond. Welcome to Startup Hustle with your hosts. One once sold a business for $150 million. The other, the author of Million Dollar Bedroom. Here are your hosts of Startup Hustle, Matt DeCourcy and Matt Watson. And we're back. Another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here with Max Younger, who will be sitting in for Matt Watson today. Before we get started, I want to let you know that today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io. Today, Max and I will be discussing medical device startups. And what does Max know about that? Well, Max is the CIO and founder of Mobility Designed. Max, is all this true? Uh, Co-founder, yep, for sure. Co-founder. Yep. But you're in on the scene. You definitely know what's going on. So um, as we get started, you know, the obviously the, the whole medical startup scene, it's got a whole lot of different plays. You have things when it comes to insurance, there's different technology. You have wearable tech and stuff like that. But for those of you listening, if you want to, um, before I hand the mic over to Max, if you want to go to his website, which is mobilitydesigned.com, you can get a picture-perfect view of some of the things that he's going to tell us about. So, Max, why don't you go ahead and give all of our listeners a, a, a bit of a background about yourself and mobility design. Yeah, so um, my, my wife and I actually started the company uh, a few years ago, and it's a, a medical device startup company focused on upright ambulatory space. So our goal is to help people uh, move from A to B in a more natural, uh, less pain way. And uh, we started that with redesigning the crutch. And our first crutch product is out there in the market. It's been there for about a year and a half, I guess, two years now. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been uh, amazing, exciting, exhausting uh, ride to launch that product. And we're just getting ready to launch our second product, which addresses a different set of challenges for the mobility uh, device space. And uh, that that is also a crutch, but it's it's a transforming crutch, just like your uh, co-host here next to you, your transformer. So Voltron, he's yeah. he's he is actually not a transformer, uh-huh. but he's close, very close. So you mentioned the crutch. Uh, every every business uh, starts with a problem that yep. you're trying to solve. So what what's wrong with the traditional crutch? Um, I don't know. Have you ever been on crutches before? Yeah, and <laughs> I I think I know the answer. But. <laughs> so the. Uh, there's a lot of challenges with uh, existing crutches in the U.S. We're a little behind the times, and we use uh, Civil War era technology. It's True. Uh, the axillary crutch uses your armpit uh, and your hands and wrists to support your weight, and that's really not great. I mean, it puts pressure in your axillary nerve bundle up in your armpit area, chafes you. Um, you're not supposed to use your armpit as a support mechanism, but people aren't strong enough to do a, kind of a handstand every other step, right? Uh, you know, you sprain your ankle, you break your ankle. Or you have a knee surgery, you're not going to be, um, you know, strong enough to do that, especially as as people get older. And so we focused on um, redesigning the crutch so that it, you didn't have to use your your armpits or your hands and your wrists to support your weight. And this was all kind of inspired by, actually, my dad. So my dad's an above the knee amputee, and in 2008, when that happened, um, you know, we decided to really kind of solve that problem. And we knew that since he's going to be using crutches. Uh, for the rest of his life that, you know, the existing solutions, the status quo was not not good enough. So we went out there and, and we did it and um, took a lot of people and a lot of uh, time and energy and, and uh, passion to and, and money to get you there. So um, right now we, we've launched that product, like I said earlier, and uh, we're getting ready to launch our second product uh, now. So. So I, I figured that it, there was probably some exposure to someone having an issue with mobility. Yep. And, you know, so with that, dad was having issues with just tr- the traditional crutch. Like, I, I think most people are using a crutch sometimes just for a very short amount of time. But right. this, your product's meant more so to cater towards someone that might have a longer-term need, or is this sure. intended to just be to anybody? Uh, great question. So... This first product is really focused on uh, a more permanent crutch user market. And uh, anybody that's going to be using a crutch for, say, six, eight weeks or longer, that's a, an amount of time that you're, you're considering. Uh, I'm going to have to go from A to B. I'm going to have to go to work. I'm going to have to um, go on a trip, potentially. I'm going to have to 
kind of live my life and I don't want to do that in pain. And we knew that um, the, the way that people were solving this problem was probably a result of efficiencies and it's easier to produce and it's cheaper to produce because they're making you know millions of these things and not a focus on what's the problems the users are facing and how to solve those problems um, in, a, in a way that in a way that allows them to get from A to B in a better, uh, less painful way. So it's about comfort, right? So our our goal is to provide comfort and support um, and kind of a cool factor for people that uh, have to use crutches. So, so what were you doing prior to starting a medical product <laughs> development firm? I was designing. So I'm an industrial designer. My wife is also an industrial designer, and we. Uh, we've worked for various companies over the years developing uh, innovative new products. Uh, you know, Hallmark was a company I used to work for a long time ago, and and uh, a company in Kansas City named Dimensional Innovations, which they're you know all those people, those companies are great. Uh, loved working with them, doing product development for them, and uh, it, it's just the you know at some point you kind of want to solve a problem and you and you jump in uh, and and you do it. My wife left her job uh, first to start the company full time. And that's at a, you know, a point where we didn't have enough funding to be able to pay ourselves to be able to, to you know, have a startup because you're, you're using your own money, your own resources. And, uh, and so I you know, had essentially kind of two jobs working for Hallmark and at nights and weekends um, uh, for my own company, trying to get those products, you know, that product off, off the ground. So we, you know, we had outside consulting firms, engineering firms, you know, people working for us. We had to raise money, uh, pitching, you know, investment firms, uh, you know, have a great, you know, bunch of people backing us and, and that, you know, believe in us and the product. And uh, that's, that's been what's, you know, kind of key to allowing us to go from just an idea and, you know, the garage 3D printed and welded prototypes to, you know, fully functional working tooled, uh, injection molded and, uh, you know, launched product. So you mentioned the garage and 3D printing and stuff like that. Is that is that the legit story of where it started? Uh, I mean, were you really doing th 3D printing and oh stuff yeah. like that? Yep. Okay. Yep. So, you know, I... Now, how long ago was that? Uh, that was... I mean, I started working on this project um, probably 2007, 2008. Oh, then, wow. Okay. And then it took, you know, you have a, a long time because you're not fully paid to be able to devote your time to it. And eventually when my wife said, I want to, I want to start this business, I want to make this thing happen. Um, that's, that was kind of the catalyst that, uh, allowed us to, to really make it and solve it. And so that was, um, back in, I think 14, 2000, I'm bad with my years. It just kind of blends, but that allowed, um, us to focus on fundraising, to build a business plan. We went back to uh, school at, um, UMKC, uh, doing the um, entrepreneurial business program there mm -hmm. just to learn because you know we were, were industrial designers we're not business people in the beginning we had to learn how to how to write a business plan how to uh, you know deal with uh, all the different uh, aspects of, of a business versus just a product so that's a common challenge so people a lot of people start businesses around something that they're passionate about doing and right. then all of a sudden it starts to become a business and they say wow I need to learn how to run a business. Uh, yeah. uh, what were some of the things that you really needed to get your arms around and 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 figure out and maybe really quickly? Uh, well, you know, it takes it takes energy, calories, people, um, resources, money to be able to start a company, right? Mm -hmm. you, and in order to get the funding that we needed, um, which we raised, my wife and I raised essentially a million dollars in our first round together. Congrats! Thanks. Yeah, that was a that was a big round um, for us. That allowed us. Uh, to get the first product off the ground and get our tooling and engineering and, and our team in place and and um, and you know marketing and all those different aspects of of a company, but you wouldn't have been able to do that without a legitimate business plan. And I don't know how many revisions in we were on that. You know that uh, took a lot of effort. My my wife uh, knocked that out of the park. She was uh, great at that, and um, it really helped us uh, legitimize kind of the business side of, of what we were trying to do and, and what the real plan was. So so when you're talking about, let's, when I look at something like this, and I can only imagine there, there were some challenges with speaking to investors. There are investors that want to put money into software. Some of them might be into services. Some of them are into hardware. This is kind of like hardware, but maybe not. Right. 
Um, I mean, did you run into some people that, that said things along the lines of, if the crutch hasn't been reinvented up until now, why would we need to do it? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was more along the lines of what their uh, core competency and focus of their funds were. So you'd, right. you'd pitch people, you know, they're, they're focused strictly on scalability of digital or right. um, whatever, their, whatever their focus was. And, and for us, it just took some time to find the right people and, um, you know, on, a, on an individual basis, kind of like, uh, you know, coffee investors, you, you meet and you, you um, have a few coffees and you talk and you show them your business plan and everything like that. And, and then you end up building a relationship and it could be an investor at that level or it could be an investor as far as, a, you know, more of a fund type situation, which we have uh, a few different funds involved in our company now, which has, you know, been huge for us, so. So that first million dollars wasn't just from one source; it was from a collection of them. No, it was, yep, it was a collection of people. It's a lot. It's a lot of. It, I'll tell you what, man. That episode two of of this whole entire podcast series is called "Getting Funded Sucks." Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's true. I mean, it's a challenge. I think the thing that um, you know that I really heard from there that would be good info to pass along to anybody listening is just really try to find. You know, if there's a, a you. What you mentioned is certain funds or investors are only interested in investing in certain kind of things. Right. If you can figure out a way to just disqualify those people because they don't—they're—they're—they're they're, they're charter bound. Yeah. They have this money that's come in, and and they've—they're getting money from other people that are investing into the fund, and with that, they have a charter that says this fund invests in this. Right. And right. they can't come off of that, no matter how great your idea or your product or your innovation is, um, if they can't, if they're charter bound, forget about it. It's not happening. So kind of, a, even if they may, their charters do direct them, of course, on their funds, but a lot of times they, they see it. I mean, when you see our product, it's, it's pretty obvious and people yeah. wonder like, why hasn't that been invented before? And, and, um, and for us, you know, when we're talking to these investors, a lot of times they'll flip it and say, you know, I, I'm, I can't, you know, my, I'd love to, my, Personally, I might be able to do something, but I want to connect you to this person. Yep. And um, that's, you know, or you ask like, well, you know, if this doesn't work for your fund, who, who would be a good fit? And that's where the warm leads kind of come in and, and it helps, uh, you know, to, to uh, make the connections that way. Yeah, and it's gotten a little easier to to try to steer towards the segment of investor that you chase. There's just things like Crunchbase and different stuff like that where you right. can actually run some filters. Right. Um, and then, you know, another way, uh, n- another form of fundraising, I would imagine you found someone along the way, if you pieced, cobbled together different sources, you just get to, like the term angel goes a long way. Oh, huge. I mean, there's yeah. just people that like someone... Was there someone that made an investment early that had directly been affected by the challenges and the problems that you're trying to solve? Because those, with what, you're, with what you've invented and brought up here, I would think that there are some people that are like, okay, man, where was this? And what right. can I do to get in on it? Um, yeah, so a, a number of our investors, just like you, have been on crutches and can relate. Mm-hmm. It's, so it's not like it's a foreign thing to them. And a lot of our investors feel good about understanding exactly what it is they're going to get um, and and it they can directly see the benefit and the solution versus sometimes it's harder for people to understand an algorithm or a software piece of code that solves some yeah. problem for someone in, in a different way uh, and they they can't relate as easily to it it's harder to demonstrate or um, uh, that's something that people have told us it's it's easier for them to just get it and um, I think you have, I think you have a good point there. Investors often shy away from things they don't understand. Right. Yeah. And you know, I think, I guess a crutch is fairly straightforward. Um, As far as medical devices are concerned, it's one of the simplest. So, so speaking of, of medical devices that screams FDA Yeah. Yeah. and regulation or some kind of regulatory stuff. So what, what have you had to go through in order to make that happen? And what, and what was that process like? Uh, you know, you know, in the beginning, we didn't know, you don't know what you don't know. And you have to kind of dig in and start to find out what you need. And then you meet with people that are experts or at least know a lot more about the space than you do. And, uh, you know, we knew a lot about product development and and building a, a great product for people, but we didn't necessarily know about FDA and, and those things at that point in time. Now we know a lot more about that. And, um, you know, we had to hire consultants and people to work for us to do 
kind of the regulatory side of things and, and get things um, submitted for FDA, you know, um, purposes and, and to get our, our numbers so you can ship product globally. So with the FDA and the regulatory stuff, you chose to hire a consulting firm. And I think that was a really, or, or at least consultants or people that had uh, some background when it came to navigating those tricky waters. Um, I, I think it, it's a, it, that's an important lesson that those listening can you know, take into account. Like, don't try to do everything yourself. I can only imagine if you had to try to learn to navigate the waters of the FDA yourself. It's exhausting. Yeah. Do you think that when you look back at it, was that like, was that a real smart move or did you at first try to navigate those waters and then realize, uh, maybe I shouldn't. I mean, for us specifically, like in the U S we looked at it a little bit ourselves earlier on. And then, you know, you quickly realize that, uh, there's only so much time in the day and you need to do what you, what you do best to help the business grow uh, as quickly as possible. And it, it wasn't a lifestyle business at this point. And, you know, it was a, you know, we have investors and we have a runway and we have, you know, all these other things that we need to get going on. And, um, so for us, you know, hiring consulting, uh, people in general for various services that we need are, are, are critical. And then when that becomes a reoccurring role, then we can start seeing about transitioning that longer term internally which we do, but um, for the most part, we try to rely on uh, consulting firms for a lot of our for a lot of our work. So, sure, and like you said, basically, it gets real in a hurry. It does. Um, it's it's one thing when you're doing it with your own dough, yeah, and when you start playing with other people's money, as as a couple of things can happen as well. It, either it's um, it's easier to to take a chance and not feel as responsible about it. Now, me. Um, I feel a different sense of responsibility. I'm like, man, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I've been able to lose my own money effectively and without, without a, uh, so still here with Max Younger. For those of you listening, we've had a couple of technical issues. I guess we got 186 episodes in and uh, then realized that we might need to learn how to use our own equipment. But, but anyway, so we were just talking about some of the challenges that came with the FDA landscape and regulatory environments, um, you know, and, and, and your preference to, or choice to use consulting firms and how that might've narrowed the window of knowledge that you needed. Now, when you get past that, anytime, you, and by the way, I'm, I'm looking, so this product that you've brought with you today, is this the first version or is this the, is this the new one? Uh, yeah, this is the uh, this is the first one. Okay. So, yeah. So that's a combination of, of metal, plastic, and um, yeah, there's aluminum in here, stainless steel, uh, nylon, glass fiber, plastics, and uh, thermoplastic rubbers. Uh, there's actual like the tips are, are a vulcanized rubber, right? All right, and we're back again. For All those right. of you listening, the the very first episode of Startup Hustle that has ever gone through any editing process. Congratulations <laughs> on that, Max. Yeah, you're welcome. We, we went through some <laughs> some equipment failure, and that's actually what I want to talk about. So, you know, anytime you're building a, a product, uh, so our former startup hustle alumnist Davion Ross of Shot Tracker is given the oh so famous quote of "They call it hardware for a reason, because <laughs> it's hard." So, you know. Your product is made out of plastic, aluminum. It's got all different kinds of stuff in it. Now, I know you have a background as an industrial engineer, but what kind of headaches, heartaches, and problems did you have to get through to get something that really worked? Mm, there's a lot of challenges to go from concept to uh, production-ready design. And we hired a pretty gifted engineer and uh, named uh, Larry Guerra, who used to own uh, GCI here out of Kansas City. And he helped us uh, work through a lot of that translation through uh, from design to engineering. And, you know, I create something that looks like it works really well. And then he takes it and was able to make it so that, you know, the wall thicknesses are correct for mold flow and all that kind of stuff. Because there's a lot of work that goes into making sure injection molded plastics and extruded aluminums and machined metals and all these things work as they're intended over a mass production product. And it's a little easier when you're making a custom prototype or something that's, that's um, you know, you're problem solving kind of on the fly to figure out how to make it perfect. Well, a production one has to be done by somebody that isn't you over and over and over and over again. Sure. 
and um, and so we you know we went through a lot of engineering to you know test things digitally right you're building it in a computer and then you're loading loading it up with weight in different ways and, and testing and seeing how it's going to fail and, and strengthening things and it's uh, quite a you know exciting fun process to be involved in and then when you actually make it you have to build machines to then go destroy it and try to um, make sure that it is going to hold up to uh, you know, millions and millions of cycles yeah. of people walking, you know, years on end. And, uh, you know, to make sure the feet don't slip and make sure that the uh, tips, you know, last a long time and, you know, all that stuff for, you know, a nice high-end product like we like we try to make. So, I used to work in the musical instrument industry and for Roland. And the, you talk about building machines to right. try to break things. Right. So they would do that with like a, a piano keyboard or like a, just a keyboard. And they had, the, you know, these things with little plungers on them that right. were just playing the keys, you know, and it would, it would count out a gazillion keystrokes or however many, and just to make sure that the sensors, the circuits, right. the key itself didn't break. So I never got too far into how many times they failed on the way up to that. But, uh, you know, that's a specific set of challenges. Now, you're, you're much like myself, you are tall. Yeah. So yeah. did you find, so I, I always joke around about tall people problems. <laughs> There's a lot of them. They're real. Like they're real. Cause, um, finding you know, pants yeah. Yeah, well, or, or whatever, but certain things like sometimes won't work well. And you know, crutches could be something like that. Yeah. They're uh, not designed. Uh, so generally crutches have about three sizes, a small, medium, large, uh, in the typical like, aluminum American crutches you think of. And uh, ours are um, a universal size, so it's uh, four foot eleven up to six foot eight. So I'm six seven, and it had to fit me. And then you know my dad, who we originally started this thing for, he's six foot five, and most crutches don't fit people our size. It stops at about six two, six three, which is considered for the crutch world about a hundred percentile person. Well, yeah, you know, there's a lot of us that aren't uh, that small, and, and therefore the crutch doesn't work for them. So we designed something that would for sure work for, you know, that height range as well as all the way down to about four foot eleven. So thank you. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it, that's an in, it's interesting though because you think about the wide range of people that I mean you have people that are theoretically you know four foot eight to right. six foot seven right and these are all potential you know people that that could use your product. So is, is this a one size fits all or do you have different iterations of it? So this, uh, like for the Japanese market, some of our um, largest customers are in Japan, and we have to shorten those crutches by about four inches. So some of your largest customers are actually not in Japan, but maybe your largest oh, distributor. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So volume, volume-wise, <laughs> that's true. And we do a uh, we do a lot of volume through Japan, and uh, their their market is is smaller. They just have a smaller uh, frame, smaller build. So we, um, you know, we have to change the crutch size for that market. And um, so we have a shorter, four-inch shorter version for them. And then we do, for different people, uh, specific uh, challenges with walking, we do a 12-inch shorter version because there's a lot of people like spina bifida or sometimes um, like cerebral palsy will keep you from being able to kind of be your natural height. And so, you, you know, you might be four foot two or four foot six. And so we, we have a crutch version that works for them. But... Uh, that's on a smaller scale basis uh, as far as the 12 inch shorter version. Yep. So from when you developed your original prototype till you actually went to market or like what, I mean, how long did it take to work out all of the, all of the issues and make it so, because, you know, if you think about it, you know, a crutch, a crutch is one of those things that you are really, you, it needs to work. Right. Yep. Um, it, or you're going to create problems that, that you definitely don't want to create. Now, yep. at the same time, you, you mentioned as you held up the product, it has a different kind of foot on it yep. than the traditional crutch. Right. Our, um, our feet, they're designed out of a vulcanized rubber and like a car tire, right? You don't want to trap, yeah. you don't want to trap water. So, uh, we have little dots, circles on the bottom of our feet, uh, that, uh, allow for the water to disperse outward. So if you can imagine like a toilet plunger on a wet floor, right. normal crutch tips, which are round, circular, they trap water, right? They When you put it on a, on a floor, it yeah. slips, like on a tile floor. Uh, ours don't. They just, it pushes the water out and allows the traction of the rubber to kind of take hold. 
it also squishes uh, and conforms to the ground kind of as you step. It kind of molds with it. So it's so for the, those listening, this uh, I mean, it's an oval shaped, yeah, it, like an oakly shape. Yeah. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. It does kind of look like that. And now that you hold it up sideways, it looks like it has two eyeballs on the side. It almost looks like ET <laughs> or something. But yeah, um, clearly a lot more well thought out than the traditional round rubber stopper that you get at the bottom of crutches. Right. Um, so. And that's that's something that you, that's not a third-party product. That's something you built all the way through, or yeah, yeah. That's I mean, all of this on here is 100% custom for our, our product. Um, and you know, you couldn't do a round a, a a tip like ours on a normal set of crutches because it has a round leg. I see. And it would rotate. It would spin. Um, ours has an oval leg for strength and light light weightness. So you, the oval is stronger in the long way. And then lighter weight in the uh, in the shorter distance on the oval, which allows us a couple things. We can key the end, and, and the the foot doesn't rotate, the leg doesn't rotate. Um, How do you go about testing the the slip ability? I mean, we have a we have machines that we've built that test that. So um, you know we have forget how many cycles, it's like 1.5 million cycles. We're testing a new foot right now at the engineers, and it's a pretty exciting foot, and it's you know millions of cycles in you start to see how it wears and how people will use it. And, um, and you can test it on different surfaces and, and a friction. You have a, essentially a force gauge. You can see the friction over time, uh, the force over time, and you can see how much friction it actually gets. Um, and, you know, when you test a normal foot versus ours, it's remarkable, the difference. So, and, and a lot of it, you know, just the material alone is a big difference. The vulcanized rubber versus a plastic. The plastic doesn't grip as well. I mean, they it's vulcanized rubber. Is that you said that's like a car tire? Yeah, like car tires are a combination of different materials, belts and things, but they have a vulcanized rubber tread, which wears really well uh, over time, and it also gives you great traction on varying surfaces. Um, whereas, you know, it's very difficult to make a good traction uh, plastic version of that tip car tires would be made up of plastic if it was a if it was a great friction source which they're not so, so when you talk about doing 1.5 million test cycles or or something like that I mean, and building machines so you i mean did you, you did actually build machines for your own testing or is that something you can you farm yep. out no we well i mean we have testing labs that do work for us too, but that's on a on a limited basis. But we do have our own machines that we've engineered, that we built, and uh, just cycle test and load test uh, different uh, products. So it gives us the ability to in-house learn really quickly. So we're able to uh, stress test and, and uh, understand exactly how the product is going to react and, and um, you know work over a very long time. So. So you're not only taking on the responsibility of designing a product, you're having to design the machines to test the product. Yep. It sounds like a lot of resources that that need to go into this because then you have to maintain those machines, right? Sure. Cali- yeah. Calibrate them. Yep. They're yeah. We send out. Pay and, for them. The load cells get calibrated. You know, you send those off to a company to to validate and or you have to replace them if they if the cells become uncalibrated. But it's all digital, right? So you see. You see the load uh, being applied, and you can actually see the forces uh, that are that are happening over time, which is uh, amazing. So the engineers that we work with are, are pretty gifted, and they are able to uh, steer us down the right path. So I'm not technically an engineer; I'm an industrial designer, and you know I went to art school, Savannah College of Art and Design, um, down in Georgia, with my wife, and and we studied, you know, how to solve problems for people. We studied how you know to watch people, see interactions of people in their environment. Um, understand you know the context and then design solutions for that because that's where you see the real problems you don't bring people in you know to a you know a room and say tell me how tell me what's wrong with this product you know because they, they tell you what you know they think you want to hear not necessarily what's actually happening so it's just about you know contextual observation and watch people do things you can find real problems so, so with an, an industrial designer will then take the feedback or the observations and you essentially and i'm sorry i'm not trying to dumb this down too much but making a sketch of sorts and then the engineer's job is to say okay we would need this type of material we need this kind of shape or arc we need whatever to not to make sure that on the 999,999th use of this it doesn't shatter um yeah so we, we you know we take that research we synthesize it 
and uh, develop you know key nuggets to build around. So like for us, it was not the armpits. It was we wanted to focus on using the elbows, which is right. much just like you right now in your chair. You're using your elbows to support some of your weight. It's much more durable. Um, and you know we take those nuggets and we design solutions around them. And the first solution we came up with is is not this one. You know the 500 solution we came up with is not this one. We had you know probably closer to eight nine hundred different designs and ideas on a way to, to solve this problem. And, um, and then once you get something that does work, you build prototypes, you test things, uh, see if your, your, you know, your ideas, your hypothesis is real, or if it's, if it's, you know, going to need to be changed, which it always needs to be changed, changed. Um, but as a designer, I don't, you know, the hard part is being done, like, like stopping the work. So you, <laughs> you always want to change. I mean, you, yeah. I think you've written a few books, right? Yeah, you, three. And I imagine the words in there could always be a little bit different if you kept editing and changing. At some point, you just say, you know what, this is it. Right. Yeah. And you have to go to market with something. Yeah. And you don't have the rest of your life to design this product. Otherwise, it's just a, it's a hobby, right? Yeah. And so is this product perfect? No. But it's pretty, pretty darn close. We worked really hard to get it there. And, uh, you know, for us, you know, being able to find those problems and create meaningful solutions for people and seeing seeing them when they finally get to use that product it's it's a huge uh, you know huge motivator for us being able to see those people that that need it and uh, it's solving their problems is great so you previously told me that your product is now being offered in 21 different countries yeah yeah it's pretty exciting uh, yep. and congrats once again Thanks. it's yep. uh, um, so it took a while for you guys. It, what, one of the things I talk about in, in one of my books is under, that if you're an entrepreneur, or you want to do something new, you have to understand your path to revenue. Uh, yeah. Um, yours sounds excruciating. <laughs> I mean, on so many levels, just meaning like think of all the things that needed to occur. I've heard about design. We have FDA. We have regulatory issues. You've got engineering. You have you have uh, production you have, and insurance. Production. Yeah, you have insurance. You sure. have uh, you know testing, and we haven't even gotten to the point where you have to actually try to sell something. Yeah. Well, for for us, we started um, on that sales side. You know, we decided because Kickstarter was pretty new to launch a Kickstarter and uh, and see what happened. You take that back in the timeline for a while because that Kickstarter is pretty new. Yeah. It's what, 09? Yeah. yeah. So Kickstarter was, Kickstarter was a while ago. And, uh, you know, what we learned is we didn't understand marketing at that point in time. We understood how to uh, make a really cool video and yeah. that uh, told the story and told the product, you know, in a beautiful way. But sometimes uh, that's enough on Kickstarter. Sometimes it's enough. Yeah. And then uh, we were, I think it was like 2015 or something when that happened. And, um, you know, but the, the Kickstarter didn't even reach its goal, right? And that was a huge, uh, you know, challenge for us emotionally to even get over because we're already in it. We're already, you know, you're asking, well, you know, what do we do now? Is this, what does this mean? And uh, shortly thereafter, a few months after that, actually one of our videos, the video that we produced uh, was edited and, and edited a little bit and it took off. It started um, uh, to go viral and then over a couple week period, it got uh, something like 56, 57 million views, which was pretty insane. Really? And we didn't have anything to sell at that. We didn't have a website uh, to sell anything. But <laughs> over a weekend and some friends, we start we changed the website to be able to take you know deposits and yeah. to be able to reserve a spot on our production line because people were trying to buy these things all over the world in different languages that we had no idea how to even answer. Um, and so that was that was a pretty meaningful moment. It was like having your own private Kickstarter, and we sold out of our first production run before we had anything had to sell. So. That was that was pretty cool, um, but you know that has its own challenges because now you have all these products you got to deliver, and your timelines are, are uh, you know you have something for a user now that you have to that you've already you know promised them that you now have to get out there, and uh, you know we have some pretty amazing people that were believing in us early on that that um, bought that first production run of product that allowed allowed us to um, kind of have a proof point that this thing is gonna this thing is gonna move. So that was exciting. Do you know what popped off the viral nature of the video? I mean, you know, we've it, thought it, a lot about it. It's I mean, <laughs> a lot of times it can be something like someone that ha I don't know uh, influencers. Um, or... Yeah, uh, you know when uh, um, Joe Pippins from the Fishing Caddy was in here, he was on. Uh, who's the guy that hosts Family Feud? Yeah, 
what the guy what's his name mm-hmm. the guy that, that that announced the wrong miss universe <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. He's anyway the guy that currently has Family Feud, but he had been on his show and like that started to develop some some heat and some hype. Sure. And you know you mentioned on uh, the reason that your original Kickstarter probably didn't didn't get moving was you actually people think you're just going to put something on Kickstarter, Indiegogo, or any of those things, and because you've built it, they will come, they right. will find you, but you're in this, like, sea of other stuff. Yeah, that's the hard part. Yeah, and you have to you have to be prepared to market your own campaign right. on yep. those things, and so how do you do that? Well, that's always a whole other thing, but, um, you know, you said 56 million views? Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Was that on YouTube? Um, no, that was on Facebook. So okay. Was, yeah. Okay, but, sure. And then that video had splinter videos and other people took the videos and edited them and you know they were having millions and millions of views. It just it kind of was this own world of its own. Um but it, it gave us some a, a validation point. It gave yeah. us that the world thought this was interesting enough to to take a look at, to order, to place a deposit on. Um you know that was a big deal for us. And um you know it it changed how we felt because we weren't sure you're still moving forward right you have this product that you're in tooling for and you're you're uh you're launching but you know the the kickstarter was a challenge emotionally just to get over but yeah. you, you have a lot of those in, in startup life some things don't work out and it, it may not be because you know the product is a bad idea maybe because you didn't understand how to sell the product maybe for various other reasons there's a sea of other things on kickstarter it's hard to get seen um and you know, a lot of people don't participate, you know, in, in the CESs of the world now because they'd rather do their own event. They'd rather do their own hype and, uh, you know, build it up because they get to be the focus rather than just like everybody else, right? And it's a, it's a challenge. Um, each company, each format, each product has to figure that out on their own, right? I would think it would be hard to sell something. So a crutch, um, you've got some people that are going to need that full-time and on a regular, right. like your dad. Yep. Um, so that's, that's easy to perhaps sell something in advance. Right. But a crutch is typically a reactive product. That right? was the problem that yeah. we, that was why Kickstarter didn't yeah. work. Cause yeah. Cause you're like, when am I going to need a crutch again? In six months. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, in six months or maybe nine or who yeah. knows whenever that deliverable <laughs> comes in and, yeah. and you people know, need that, to plan. And so. that's a challenge. I mean, I think a crutch is typically something that, you know, you sprain your ankle or, 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 I don't know, you go through some form of trauma and right. now you need a crutch. So this is by appearance, I can tell that this is probably more expensive than a traditional wooden crutch, Yeah, which yeah. provides a different, so the law of economics will state that every, basically every dollar, every percentage you, every percentage point you rise over and above the normal price of something is going to translate to 1% less in sales. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's, it's actually like pretty much like it's same thing with discounting. Yep. Um, so if you give a, technically if you give a 1% discount, you should see a 1% uptick. Right. Um, so this, uh, I don't know how much is a, a traditional wooden crutch, like 30 they... bucks a pair. You know that yeah, you can go to CVS or Walmart and get a thirty dollar crutch. Amazon. How, how much um, is yours? You know, compared to those, it's expensive, right? It's two fifty uh, compared okay. to as a mobility device. When you're thinking about it in terms of I want to get from A to B without pain, you know, on a more permanent basis, it's that's something that um, you know people are are willing to to pay for to be able to get to that if you're going to use it for more than two days yeah yeah i mean so so that's is that the target market uh for this particular product our new yes for our new product it's it's uh you know a more temporary uh, crutch user so kind of an acute uh, scenario so is that an ancillary that's like a secondary product it's like you've got here's one product that's going to be at a higher price point it's for the full-time or long-term user and then you're tackling that price point issue with your second product yeah so we have features we have benefits for this on this product when a user is using it like the cradle the thing that holds your arm can go up and it's hinged allowing you to do stuff with your hands like you know talk on your phone or you know adjust you know scratch your eye like you just did right so that's uh you you touch your face three thousand times a day it's important really yeah it's crazy it counts sometime you'll see and uh, i've got my clicker here (laughs) i just clicked one on yeah and so uh 
it, you need to be able to do things um, on, a, on an everyday basis different than you would on an acute care basis. And uh, that might be a, a benefit that they're not willing to pay for, you know, for a sprained ankle. And so we, you know, we developed a product that would work for those users. It doesn't have a rotating handle like our handle. You can push a button, it rotates out of the way, you know, be, you know to hold your coffee or open a door or, you know, various other things you might want to do. Um, but that's an expensive thing to do, right? So it's, you have to uh, be able to design a product for different users, different markets. And, um, you know, a lot of times people walk out of a hospital or, or an emergency room with a pair of crutches, right? And that's a whole different market. That's a whole different way to get to that. It's not even like a purchase path because it's a, you know, it's a, it's a device that almost is like, feels like it's gifted to you, but it's really paid for through your insurance. And that's about 110 to $150 you're going to be paying for that. Yeah, that was the next question is, are yeah. all levels of this, of your product covered by most insurance? Uh, private uh, does cover quite a bit of it, private insurances, and then uh, public insurance uh, doesn't yet. Uh, okay. But the and is that because of the cost? The cost to get that covered is, is immense. And, uh, it's not a path where we've gone down at the moment. You say the cost to get that covered is, do you have to go through a separate approval process to be like a, what is that? Medicaid? Or uh, whatever yeah. It is? Like Medicare, Medicaid, uh, to get them in their, in their systems. Oh, so you uh, have to go through, you have to go through a whole separate approval it's, process. It's a, yeah, it's a different, it's a different process entirely. Is so, that, is that similar to like the, the, uh, uh, what do you call it? Like the, the requisition system or what would you, I mean, it, God, I can only imagine. I used to do do bids for states right. or cities, right. and I'm like, why do I have to fill out so much stuff? But at the same time, once you are a vendor, right, you would probably like stumble in to some sales because the people that were in the purchasing departments were right. like, oh, they're already set up. I'd much rather give you this contract than have to bring on a new vendor. And that's where it's easier to work with distributors that already have that relationship. And, yeah, sure. Um, but this is a different product. It's a new product. Uh, so it does require kind of its own unique path versus a, a traditional reimbursement path because the reimbursements on, on a typical crutch aren't great as far as insurance is concerned. And, and we have a whole lot of problems with our insurance industry in general. And uh, getting into that wasn't, you know, a fun thought for us. And um, it was it was more we wanted to solve a problem for people and and the you know the revenue stream for that would be mostly on the uh, on the on a cash basis it's just like you're going to buy a new device or something for your house you know um you know a new alexa whatever it is that we didn't want to go down the path of of uh, you know the insurance route because that pigeonholes you into a certain price point it pigeonholes you mm -hmm. into a certain benefit and uh that's why crutches one of the reasons they haven't really changed right they can't change because they don't have anything to work with and um we just wanted to make a better product for people so in regards to sales and distribution, you mentioned working with different vendors mm -hmm. or people that will sell that stuff. I mean, that, that's a great way to get a product in front of a heck of a lot of people, you yep. know, because a lot of these, you're selling one product, they're selling, oftentimes selling a catalog full. Sure. And, and with that, they've leveraged the power of volume mm -hmm. and also have worked really hard to establish a distribution or, you know, some kind of network. Yep. Um, is that, is that the sales and distribution model that you guys lean on and rely on, or do you do any direct sales? I mean, can, and I didn't spend enough time. If you want to uh, check out more about Max's, uh, stuff, by the way, go to mobilitydesign.com and you can also go to the gram at MD underscore crutch. Now, can I buy your product on your website? Yeah, for sure. So we do direct to consumer, you know, that we do Amazon, we do, okay. um, you know, sell from our website. We have distribution centers uh, globally and uh, and locally, and that kind of allows us to be able to ship products at, at lower cost to users. Uh, but we also do uh, work with distributors globally because distributors have their network. They, yeah, they sure. know their market. They know their insurance industry, and, and we don't necessarily know um, the, we don't know the insurance industries of, of different countries and the, the purchase path for their particular users because it's unique in every, every country you go to. And um, that's why we work with uh, distributors, especially globally and um, locally. Um, but we do, uh, we do do both. It does, we, we have you know, minimum advertised pricing and those kinds of things that you have to implement for strategies like that. But it does help uh, for us to be able to uh, prove out business models and, and various you know ways that we're trying to work with the business so 
So what Matt, Max just mentioned was MAP, the minimum advertised price. Right. Um, I think most people don't even realize that that is a thing. Yep. And that was something we had, you know, at the music industry because your distributors, uh, it's the race, it can be the race to the bottom. Yeah, it does. In a hurry. And it's difficult to support your own price point. Um, and, you know, things like, so 10 years ago, you talk about uh, doing this in 2009 and, and prior. The world of e-commerce has changed so much since yep. you started pioneering this product. Um, so we look at something like Amazon. So how long have you been selling on Amazon? Mm, think about a year, and year and a quarter now. Okay, so not not that long. Right. Yep. Okay, so four years ago, Prime wasn't what it is now. Yeah, Prime changed everything. So, yeah, it yeah. did. But I, I would think that this would be a hard product to sell pre-Prime. Because if you need a crutch, yeah. you know, you wouldn't, I mean, now you might be able to get it the same day. Right. Yep. And this is, this is kind of a now product yep. for some of us. Um, has, but at the same time, Amazon presents a separate set of challenges because you got to have inventory there. Yep. Uh, they do take a fair amount of your sale. I don't know what, what the, the rate do. is in your It's different category. in every category. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So whatever your category is, it could be different. But is that something that you found success with distribution? Uh, huge. Yeah. Amazon's, it's a big chunk of our business. Yeah. Um, That's 53% of e-commerce right now. Jeez. <laughs> they, they are a behemoth. Um, the, chal- the challenge with Amazon is they're easy to work with on the front end for a user, right? It's mm-hmm. easy to buy something on there. Super easy. That's the point. But it's very difficult to work on the back end and um, try to make, you know, try to get a video on Amazon, for instance, to communicate your product. It's really hard. Like you it's, have it's to. It's amazing how unsophisticated their system is for a company that size on well, you, some things. They legally don't let you do it unless yeah, sure. you have certain yeah. uh, criteria met right. and allow them to do certain things with your products. And is that well? And that's in the medical. That's, that's in our, yeah, I don't know if that changes outside of our category. I don't know. I think it's outside. different and all, you know, selling on Amazon's different for so many different, you know, as an author, the interface and the things like I can't put a video right on my book page. Right. That's not a thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, you it's can't. not, I can't put a pro, I can't put a series of product images. Right. It's the cover the back <laughs> and what they let you preview. Yep. Now that said, I, if I want so I have two options as an author. I can either send pre-printed books off to Amazon mm-hmm. and then they charge me to distribute and store them. Sure. Yep. Or I can go through their publication platform. Right. Which is what I do. Okay. Does that make it easier for you? It Well, kind of. Um, it makes it easy. It makes it easy because if you don't, it, it, most people, a lot of people don't know this. If you send your product out to Amazon and you don't sell it fast enough, mm-hmm. You either need to pay a lot to send it back to yourself, or they start basically penalizing you. Yep, yep. And so it makes it makes your supply chain stuff harder to deal with. Now, another thing a lot of people don't know is most of the books that you buy on Amazon, they print as they sell. Right. <laughs> like true print on demand. Wow. So it's 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 kind of wild. But yeah, you have to use their just in time. Yeah, supply chain. Yeah, yeah, you have to get, well, I think at some point they understand, they start printing some in advance. So I think economies they, of scale. Yeah, difficult. I think they, I don't know how they do it, but, you know, they, they so they're, they're, they're collecting a royalty on your book and they're, and they're making money right. from printing. So by the end, they get most of the money. Right. When we sell something and it's the same thing like with Audible. Yep. You know, we get a, I get a 40% royalty. On Audible stuff. On Audible yeah, despite the fact that I paid to create the Audible. Uh, for now, until so. they make it even more difficult. But um, Well, some of the things, too, is like the open sourcing of things. Like you have like Spotify, well, Kindle, Kindle Direct, hmm. the subscription. Okay. So you get like a, like a half a penny a page. Ooh, that's, that, yeah, ever, I mean, it sounds like the music industry. It sounds like yeah, a... Well, it's, yeah, my last book was about that, and it's, it's actually all about this. It's about streaming, but the thing is, is you have to out there because yep. you're missing a significant portion so it does i mean all that do, all that stuff does add up and it does matter so we've never had the issue i mean we run out of inventory or get close to running out of inventory quite quickly so we don't have issues with uh you know 
I haven't had that yet where they have that, to charge us. Uh, you that know, was actually penalties. my next question. And but, as, as we kind of move, move towards the conclusion of yet another thrilling episode of Startup Hustle brought to you by FullScale.io, in which we, we have worked through our own technical challenges today. <laughs> it's kind of funny. It's, I've always tell people that uh, we, we publish the podcast warts and all. Yeah. People ask me a lot. They say, how much, how much time do you guys spend editing? I say, none. We'll spend a little time on this one. We had our, uh, our, our podcasting equipment break down not once, not twice, but actually five times. So, and that, that is the, our podcast version of issues in the supply chain. Yeah. <laughs> what, <laughs> what sort of supply chain issues have you had to overcome or learn about to make, make all of this smooth? Um, I, supply chain is a challenging thing. I mean, sometimes, you know, we developed a new type of bolt that allows you to use a coin, a Euro coin, a U.S. coin to tighten things down, right? And that, you know, we had challenges with MOQs on that. They need, people need 100,000 of with something. With what? MOQs? A minimum order quantities. Ah, yeah. Okay. Sorry, acronym. And, um, yeah, that certain things, you know, you're not used to. It's like all, all of a sudden I have to buy 100,000 of something. And if it's wrong, then you have, you know, 99,000 uh, wrong ones that you have to deal with uh, yeah. and, and figure out what to do with. Have you had that happen? Um, we have had, yeah, we, in the beginning we bought the wrong kind of snap buttons and, you know, we had thousands and thousands of these little buttons that you push. Um, but we changed the button type to be easier for the user to use and, and uh, hold more weight and things like that. And, you know, figuring out what to do with those and, and uh, recycling them in the end, which is the better way. Yeah. People don't want to take back their uh, supplies once they've built them for you. Um, but you just learn. Luckily, that was in the beginning, and we just had smaller quantities at that time. And, and this, uh, you know, the bolts, you know, just figure out the right vendors to work with. And um, it's not always easy. You know, I've, I've traveled all, all over the world working with different companies that do things for us. And, uh in their languages, Google Translate's an amazing app. It um, is, isn't it? But sitting there and drawing for your, you know, being able to communicate visually for people and say, this is exactly what I want, or they say, I can't make that tool. And I, you know, I'm like, well, this is how I was intending to make it, and here's the idea. And then, and then working through, because usually there's always going to be a problem. It's like never, never going to be, okay, great, it'll be here in two weeks. It's, there's a time issue, there's a money issue, there's I can't do this issue. And then finding the right people to help you solve that problem and, and to, um, you know, solve the problems for you before they are problems are, is key. The right team is, is always key. So Where do you build all this stuff? Uh, we do some. So some of our parts come from Germany. Some from, uh, we do some assembly here in the U.S. We do a lot of assembly over in Taiwan and India. Uh, Taiwan is kind of like high-end China, if you can think mm -hmm. about that. Labor yep. rates are similar to the U.S., but they're... Have you been there? Uh, I haven't been to Taiwan yet. I have been to India and, and all over Europe for various things. But um, the uh, you know the, the benefit is they have a huge knowledge base in manufacturing, and, and frankly, a lot of our knowledge base here has changed over the years because we've we've pushed a lot of our manufacturing over to Asia. Yep. And uh, so getting people to even work with you in the beginning on a product as complicated to, to make as ours. Uh, even though it's a simple product, it's a, it's a difficult tool uh, that makes it. And, um, you know, a lot of people just turn you down because they don't have the expertise or they don't have the time or, or whatever. To or work they think you. you're not going to make enough of them. Right, yeah. Which might be the more of a driving factor. They hear startup and they run the other way. Uh, yeah, they can. And, and, you know, that's a challenge. And, and you mentioned things, you know, you've rattled off five or six different countries there. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize that one of the biggest challenges to bringing products into the country is customs. And oh, yeah. you don't have yeah. any control. You don't call customs and tell them to, to hurry up. And yeah. push your parts through faster. So some of the things we'd run into. So Roland, my former employer, is a Japanese company, but they had manufacturing facilities, largely in Japan, but other places too. Right. Um, you know, things show up in the dock at the dock in LA. Right. And you're just kind of sitting there. You have to you, wait. That you you we would have to give people a window. Right. We'd you know someone said, well, when's my order coming in? Uh, sometime between the tenth and the twenty third. Right. And they're like, what do you mean? can't do much about it right and sometimes it would go quickly and then sometimes you get to the end of those time frames and you're going what yeah and they where is this gets through when it gets through and 
And, you know, we've had several different people that have been in here that have made some kind of product and also talked about, you know, quality control is a real sure. challenge. Sure. And, you know, whether it's a button or a change or and then sometimes if you're if you're if you have parts that are universal, like used through other things in life and then maybe they change it. Yep. Like all of a sudden here's a bolt and it just threads a little different. Right. Or something, you know, just something goofy. And then and now um, that's, you, that's why you have, uh, it's called standard operating procedures, SOPs, and they're really dry to read, but they are critical for how to, how to deal with when there's going to be changes and when there's going to be implement, implemented parts that are from different vendors and, and various things like and, that. And so. getting people to follow your SOPs that's is a whole other, other that's, that's a, yeah. <laughs> the that's, SOBs that don't follow the SOPs. So you need good relationships with your vendors. Otherwise, a, no uh, doubt. No yep, doubt. For sure. Well, man, this is all really interesting. So if you get a chance, go to mobilitydesign.com. Go check out Instagram. Go to MD underscore crutch. See what they're building. Um, it's really hard to, to truly paint a word picture I could try. Uh, you have one of your uh, products here in the studio. I mean, I can just tell by looking at it that that is sign a significant improvement mm -hmm. on the entire crutch. Thanks, yeah. Um, as, as we round out this episode of Startup Hustle, and once again, thanks for, for dealing with our, our studio challenges today. No problem. You know, we figure if we give this podcast about 1.5 million repetitions, we'll eventually <laughs> get it right. So yeah, I think we'll, we'll find something new. Wrong we're, we're, in the we're in the ballpark of 200 at this point. So um, I don't know what episode number this will be, but you talk about that, that repetition, and there's always something that can go wrong. Um, hey, two questions on the way out. Uh, well, first, one of them will be, um, we'll, I like to ask at the end what kind of advice you'd have for someone that wanted to be hopeful. And then prior to that, have you finally accepted the fact that things just go wrong and that there are certain things you can't control? Um, so on the helpful piece, um, you know, you're going to hit the softball first, huh? <laughs> find, uh, find, find people that do what you don't do well and find people that you really want to work with and work around. Um, and, and then, and then keep them happy, keep them close. Right. So, uh, that is, that is a huge piece. Cause sometimes it's, you know, easy proximity, the person's there and they might be available, um, or they didn't have a job or whatever it is, that, but you really need to find the right people. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and that's, that's key. And we've had some great people over the years working with us and, you know, we wouldn't be here without them. And, uh, as far as I, th I think, uh, you know, we, we have things go wrong all the time and right now we're launching a new product. So we're in the middle of lots of things going wrong, but when it comes out, it's going to be great. Um, the, the things that go wrong hopefully are smaller and you know you're able to solve for them but the main thing is just kind of keeping calm about them because it is a relationship right and and uh if if something is is a problem there's there's usually going to be you know a solution or a way to solve for it and it's you know time or money or whatever it is that that can get you there um but the key is to having those those great people around you to help solve that problem the the great relationships with the vendors building that relationship like i can't stress enough um you know the people you work with go out to dinner with them uh you know have a drink with them get coffee with them on a on a fairly regular basis build your relationship with them because they're what make your life able to work and and happen right and without that you know you don't have anything because it the relationship can fall apart so fast if you're not careful so it's it's uh you know something I've learned in other companies and, and various other experiences in life and you you know building that relationship is key so you talk about that relationship but also building that knowledge that goes mm -hmm. with it and I saw um, a, a fun I'm not a big memes guy but I saw one that it said CFO and then it said Colin said well what happens if we spend all this money investing in our employees and then they leave <laughs> and then it said CEO what happens if we don't invest in our employees and then they stay? Yeah, huge. And that's that, that's that whole thing. And, you know, yeah. obviously the people that are around you, I, I like to take the 
the approach that they're working with me, not for me. Yep. And, you know, when I go to our office in the Philippines, well, last time I went, I asked everyone, I, I, we do a, a really fun town hall meeting and I let them ask me whatever questions they want. They submit idea. them and some of them are funny. Like one of them was, hey, Matt, do you drink? Want to get wasted? <laughs> um, I answered it. <laughs> but I, I said not often, but maybe after this week. But you know, making yourself available and open. But you know, I asked our whole staff. I said, "Who who here works for me?" And about two thirds of the room raised their hands. And I said, "You're all wrong. I work for you." Hmm. And it's true. And if you're going to be a leader and you're going to be an innovator, or you're going to do things that matter. You're not going to. You can't do massive things alone yep. you need you need a team of people around you and in order to do that they want to be heard um, they need to understand the, their level of importance in the organization and you know different stuff and then I think really in the end people want to know that that they're doing things that are the better that matter yep. yeah and that they're doing things that'll help I don't know I mean and, and the definition of things that matter is different for all of us sure. but but anyway so once again, if you get a chance, go to mobilitydesign.com. Go to Instagram, MD underscore crutch. While you're there, if you want to check us out, go to at Startup Hustle Podcast. See you next time. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Startup Hustle with Matt DeCarsi and Matt Watson. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit startuphustle.xyz. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. And we'll catch you next time on Startup Hustle.